Hi, I'm Jason Marcos. And I'm Barry Hamaguchi. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why we think you should give these songs a second chance. This week, we're redeeming two songs by R&B singer Tamiya and alternative band Veruca Salt that blew our teenaged minds, but didn't really blow up the pop charts. Was it just our raging hormones? Great. Perfect. <laughs> hey, Barry. Good, good morning. I heard, I heard a pop. That's my second can of beer. <laughs> I, I, I hope really Davey doesn't to. mind that I'm drinking all of his beer. Um, <laughs> so this week we're talking about songs that came out somewhere around the time that we were 17 years old, like junior, senior year of high school. Um, and one of the reasons that I brought up this topic or I thought of this topic is that I think I have these like unnatural connections to some of the songs that came out in that year that I turned 17. Cause you have like hormones, you have emotions, you have feelings, all these <laughs> things that I currently no longer have apparently. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it, I feel like life feels so tumultuous and so over the top that like, for me anyway, I feel like I established these emotional connections to things that one have never been the same since then. Hmm but also have kind of persisted. Like I can still listen to things or see things that I experienced so vividly in high school. And all of that sensation kind of comes back to me. Yeah. When I was looking up the song, when I was looking at, you know, when I was thinking about these songs and thinking about what I was really into, like in those years, 1998, 1999. Yeah. It was like, it, it was so crazy. It brought back all these feelings and it's like, yeah. I can, I can see where I was like with this song specifically with the song I'm going to talk about. I, I knew exactly where I was the first time I heard it. Who were you? So who were you in high school in your own words? I was sort of in the middle. Like I had a lot of friends with uh, like, I had a lot of like very different groups of friends, right? Like I kind of moved between groups. There's kind of like the sort of alternative kids. There were like, popular kids there were like the sort of popular kids i don't know it was just like we i had friends in lots of different groups so i kind of like see different people or have different conversations yeah i mean i think in the way that like tv and movies kind of present this like um very segmented view of high school in the way that like it's like oh the popular kids the jocks the cheerleaders mm -hmm. the band geeks the theater geeks i don't know a lot of people who actually experience that level of segmentation like it's it, it's it does seem to be more of what you're describing for most people that you have a blend of like everyone kind of floats between a few different spots because we're all a little bit multifaceted i guess i i don't know if i was unique but like I kind of moved between different groups over the course of high school and like sort of, you know, kind of moved between cliques, I guess you could say. There was a there was a lot of that segmentation, like like in the movies where, you know, where it's within the segments that I moved, I was moving. They were not. Does that make sense? Mm. So those segments that you associated with, like no one associated with each other, like that's not really. Yeah, I yeah. guess that's the part that I think is maybe exaggerated to me is that like. One that like, I mean, for me personally, like I had a segment of groups that we were like all doing like theater stuff and stage mm -hmm. crew. And then I had kind of like my classmate friends mm -hmm. and there was like a little bit of blend of like some of the people that were in my class. Like your homeroom. Yeah. Like people that were in my homeroom or yeah. just people that I frequently 
interacted with in class. Like those people became kind of my core yeah. friends. But then extracurricularly, the only thing that I really ever did in high school was stage crew. And that formed like a huge basis for my friend group. But I guess in the way that it seems stratified in movies like Mean Girls or Clueless or stuff like that, where there was one group of people that was on top and that all these groups really didn't interact with each other. It's like I had friends that were in stage crew. There were people in stage crew that were on the football team. There were people in band that were on the football team. There were people in my calculus class that were jocks. It was, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't as cut and dry, I think, as the movies would have you believe. And, and I don't, I never felt like there was a hierarchy to anything because Mm. at the end of the day, most everyone had friends. Yeah. Like a group of friends that gave you, gave you a little bit of social collateral. So even if you were in band and only associated with 10 friends that you had from band, you had 10 good friends. And that says a lot. Or if you... Or if you were, you know, a jock and you were on the football team and you had 10 close friends that were all on the football team with you. It's like, it didn't really matter hierarchically where you sat because you you had 10 or so good friends. And for me, that was always like, I had I always had a group of like 10 or so good friends mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. like to this day, like I'm still really good friends with. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to me and my recollections of myself in high school, I just think of myself as a giant disaster just ball of anxiety. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, th- I think that's the thing is like, I never sought out therapy or any, anything like that as a kid in high school, but I think I was dealing with so much anxiety and so much like panic mm-hmm. that I never really got to process. Mm-hmm. And it's only in retrospect as an adult who, you know, has gone to therapy a little bit that I start to, I start to think about the ramifications of that mm-hmm. and my behavior that I think I was kind of an erratic person. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say like bipolar because I was never like clinically diagnosed with anything, but I had these moments of just the only way I can describe it objectively is like manic behavior mm-hmm. of just dangerous, crazy, uncontrolled things that I was saying and doing because I didn't know how to cope with the level of panic that I had in my body, like at all times. So today we're taking kind of like a, or I'm taking a divergence from a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about because the song that I'm talking about today is this nineties alternative song. And that's Mm -hmm. very much who I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Was that like overwrought with emotion, like semi closeted gay kid in high school. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I feel like I know, I mean, obviously we click because we've been friends for so long, but one of the reasons I gravitated towards you when we first met was because you reminded me of a lot of friends, my really close friends in high school. Um, Cause I, I just insane. Like, no, it was, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't but, know what kind of company you were keeping in high school. No, I, you know, I find your anxiety endearing. Um, no, but what I, you just, just like your vibe sort of like you were always like you, you came to, you came across kind of, like, I know your love is pop music, but you kind of, to me at the time, presented more as like an alternative kid, <laughs> for lack of a better word, right? Like, I think I met you, you had like gray or purple hair. I don't remember. It might not I mean, it was in like the 2000s. I mean, that's the thing is like when we met, it was like 2003. So I was only mm-hmm. like five years out of high school at that yeah. point. I was like yeah. just out of college, basically. And I was very much into like, I think by by 2000, you know, alternative 
rock had kind of taken a turn and I was identifying more with like indie pop and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, like, I mean, it's funny because I think that that whole part of my persona, that alternative vibe that I adopted and I gave off and like the music that I identified with a big part of that too. I think it has to do with being gay and it's not like I was in high school. I don't think that I was necessarily in the closet, but I wasn't out of the closet either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would never deny being gay in high school, but I would avoid the issue as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And one coping mechanism that I think I developed, especially in high school was that like if you were a weirdo in like every way conceivable like no one will fuck with you yeah that's interesting you know like it's (laughs) it's it's like you could be you could be victimized for being different for being perceived as gay for being uh, perceived of as weak for being perceived of as you know different right yeah like that's when people will will hone in on you and victimize you or just like there's like this insidious they're like micro bullying incidences that you or everyone probably experiences for being different in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think that in high school, I developed this defense mechanism of thinking like, well, if I am just the most outlandish, weird person, it'll just overwhelm the system and no one will have anything to say. Because That's, at that point, like yeah. you can say anything to me about the color of my hair, the way I walk, the way I talk, the things I do, the things I say, and it's not going to even phase me because I know that I'm in control of everything weird that I'm doing. And I think that that was like a huge defense mechanism in terms of that becoming a part of me as I kind of came of age in the late 90s. That's interesting because I think, you know, as we talk about this, I'm thinking about my high school experience and I took a completely different tack. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that like I, you know, I I had a lot of different friend groups. I I knew a lot of different people. I think my coping mechanism for being semi-closeted and then you know, kind of coming out my senior year was to have as many friends as possible, not necessarily to be popular, but I felt like my, my strategy was like, if the more people like me or get to know me, the more people I interact with in a positive way, the more positive my overall experience will be because there will be fewer people to like bully me or whatever, you know, and, and and, and, numbers, it was safety in numbers. It was like, which is not to say that that was like the only reason I made friends, but it, I realized now that it was that was why it was so important to me to have a lot of friends. And like yeah. at the end of the year to be like, I have a lot of friends, like I have a lot of different friends. So it's not just that like my core group of friends will protect me. It's like people around the entire school will protect me because like I don't know how yeah. big your high school was. Like my yeah, hi- my graduating. Yeah, my graduating class was like 660 people or something like that. Yeah, and same. So, somewhere around right. There. And so it was like it was important to me. Yeah. To like have friends everywhere because you didn't know what class you were going to have. You didn't have, you know, all yeah. of these things. And then grow. And, and like I started off my high school, my high school years in a very strict, you know, Southern Baptist uh, uh, private school. And that was awful for me. Like I wanted to commit suicide like every day. It was just, I mean, everyone from like the kids to the teachers were just awful. And, um, you know, being a closeted kid or someone, not even closeted. I didn't know what was going on, but like, they yeah. could, you know, you know how kids are and, and teachers. I mean, we're, too. do you think that like, I always wonder, like, do you think people clocked you for being gay? 
it's I think I think it's one of those things. It's one of those things. I was feminine, right? I spoke yeah. with a fem- like my voice is my voice, and 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 the way I walk. I remember like um, you know people would be like, oh, why do you walk like that? And I'm like, what do you mean? And it's like you. What did you people switch. say? So, someone said I sauntered. Someone said I sauntered in high school. <laughs> I was told I was I swished, and then I, okay. at one point, this one girl I remember, Justine, in my in my church youth group, you know, one day she's like, you know, Jason, she's like. I'm really concerned because you were doing really well and you weren't really swishing, but, but it's kind of come back and kids are so fucked up. Yeah. And I was like, who, what the fuck? Like, like, you know, and you're so, so like I, I petition, I, I like, I begged my parents to let me out of that school because my, my, they were like, well, we want you to have a Christian education. And I was like, well, all of my church friends go to this public school. So like, I'll still be with them. Right. People mm-hmm. don't understand like how awful it is. Like, it was more embarrassing for me to tell my parents that people were bullying me for being gay than to, I, I don't know. Like it was like, that was what was the hardest conversation. So anyway, so I, mm-hmm. so I went my sophomore year, I started at the public school and I, you know, I'd always been afraid of public school because like I was, I'd watch movies. I'd be like, Oh my God, I'm going to get beat up or something. And That's it was like totally a, fine. Was that movie stand, stand by me. Stand by, yeah, exactly. I was like, Oh God, I'm going to no, not killed. stand by me. Lean on me. Lean on me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to get killed. And, <laughs> You're going to um, find, they're going to find your body by the railroad track. No, no, no. But it was, Morgan you know, Freeman was... is going to bring out a bat. And... <laughs> right. That um, was like the 80s impression of like, oh, public school. It's yeah. Morgan it was Freeman like awful. It's like, oh God. Yeah. And um, I started off with like my church group friends and some of them are still my friends today. But like I met other people and I kind of, I found other people who like weren't that small minded and you know, just it, it kind of changed the whole experience. And I and I would, you know, one of my other strategies was I, I had a lot of girlfriends, obviously, but like as yeah. many gays do. But um, I found that, like, if you could be friends with, like, girls who are some influential or popular to some extent, then, like, their boyfriends couldn't say shit to you. And, you know, it's like it, the storyline of, like, GBF. Right. It was like I needed additional protection. And, like, I, I don't know that I necessarily thought of it like that it wasn't like i had a strategy but it was like your survival right and and like i I have very good friends to this day who like you know came out of that and you know they're they're some of the best friends of my life i also you know there was there was this one my my best friend jordan um subscriber to the pod subscriber to the pod yeah friend of the pod um (laughs) just you know we found each other like we we'd had this like rivalry we had a we had a mutual group of friends and he was he was like much more in the central integral to that group, like before mm-hmm. I kind of came in and he was like the alpha gay. Your life really was like the movie GBF. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was like, he was so cool, effortlessly cool in a way that I could never be. Like I would, I was always trying to be like, Oh, like this is the new thing. I'm going to go buy that. And like Jordan didn't give a shit about any of that, but like would just wear whatever the fuck. And like, it always looked so cool and I was so jealous. And then of course he was like the other gay. So we kind of hated each other. And then we were like, Oh my God, our, all of our friends, um, they were like one year older. So they graduated the year before us. And so I remember junior year kind of being like, okay. And we went shopping one day and I turned to him. I was like, so you're like gay, right? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, okay. Cause I think I'm bi. <laughs> Cause I still like Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> That was my and and your brief, your brief, my brief, brief. my brief for flirtation, and then I realized I just wanted to dress Jennifer Lopez. I didn't want to sleep with her, and um, and then we we had each other, and like I could not have made it through high school without a friend like Jordan, and and we were both like out at school. We weren't necessarily out to our families, but we were out at school, and 
it it made that senior year so much better. And because, mm-hmm. you know, I had that first taste of like being able to live like your truth and be yourself. And but again, to the point about like, you know, different friend circles and things like, you know, in Hawaii, like graduation parties are like the big thing. Like and so it was just so exciting to like have so many different graduations to go to or graduation parties to go to because like I really knew so many people and I really liked so many people and so many people like me. And it was like it was a, it was it felt very good. Um, and I felt very protected in that space. And so, um, high school for me wasn't like, I don't think of it as being full of anxiety, the, 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 that particular kind of anxiety, but there was like an anxiety of like trying to figure out who I was. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other kind of mitigating circumstance to, I think my situation was that I went to like an academic magnet school Mm. and to this day, High school was the hardest thing that I ever experienced in my <laughs> life. I went to call. I went away to college, and I was like, "Holy shit! College is fucking the easiest thing I've ever done." College to this day is the easiest thing mm-hmm. that I ever had to go through. High school was, and I think it's because high school was this um, psychological, emotional, physical um, terror. Yeah, um, being amongst ostensibly the smartest kids in San Francisco Hmm. all trying to battle it out to be kind of like on top of the dog pile of GPAs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like that was, I think that was pretty traumatic to me. And I, in talking to a lot of friends about it, it's like, I think that was like very traumatic to a lot of us, but I think for the, for the most part, a lot of us were like, Oh, after that experience though, like almost everything in life felt like you could do it after that's, that. That's interesting because I remember, so I had always been like top of my class when I had, got, when I went over into public school, like at the, at that point. And then like my parents were always worried that like, if I went to public school, that like the rigor, it wouldn't be as rigorous. And mm-hmm. I would, my, my education was, would like drop off. And I always fought that, but there was some of that, like there was more freedom for sure. Where I was like, I remember like this, they wanted me to join honor society. I was like, ugh, like, cause I was like, I don't want to be with you people. Cause I was like, I, I really was, <laughs> I don't know. I was just like, ah, oh, it's so much. And, and, and like, to your point, I think what I was reacting to, which I, I realize now is what you're talking about. It was the, the, what does you say? The dog piling, uh, uh, you know, trying, trying to get yeah. the top of the heap of the GPA. And like that registered to me. And at the time I rejected what I thought was like uptightness or whatever, but like, it's another kind of competitiveness, right? And and I rejected that, so, like, I didn't have that. But I will say, while I was figuring myself out and I felt very good about it and I was generally very happy by the time I left high school, I had lost some of my intellectual rigor, like, my, my discipline mm-hmm. and my study skills and things. Like, I had let that go a little bit. So college, not that it was hard, I had to train myself how to learn again. And how to, like, be good at school again. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I didn't go into college and being like, okay, high school was the hardest thing. It was now, like, okay, college, having to build that discipline for myself and build a life for myself, you know, where I'm accountable for everything. Yeah. Was was a big, it was a big transition. It's one of those things that, for my life, it's like, in that I kind of survived that terror and the psychological damage... I guess that's one of the things that I've always been thankful for too, is that coming out of that experience and going to like UCLA and 
realizing like, oh, all that suffering that I just experienced for the past four years prepared me for this moment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway, I just wanted to, you know, start out this episode with a brief kind of touching upon like where we were at, I guess, at the time. Yeah. The songs that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Come out. Um, <laughs> because I think that's very telling about like who you were and what songs you were listening to. At the exactly. Time. Because I, you know, you're talking about Veruca Salt and it's like, I, I definitely, well, yeah, I can see that. And like, I was aware of these songs. That wasn't what I listened to all the time. And like my songs that I like loved were, you know, the whole premise of this podcast is like, generally speaking, these are flops, right. Or, or whatever, like for whatever reason, the songs didn't work. And when I was trying to do research, it was like, well, everything I listened to at the time was, I, I think by all accounts a success because I literally just listened to like what was on the radio. Yeah. And so like if it was on the radio or it was on MTV, like it was a success generally speaking. So, so I was, I, you know, at first I was, I was trying to figure it out, but, um, I liked much more romantic music. I was a very like ro- like pining for romance kind of person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, no, this will be interesting as we get into it. All right, cool. So before we cut to break, I just wanted to mention to everyone that everything we're talking about today, we're going to be posting it to our website at flopredeemer.com. And if you have any comments, questions, concerns, quandaries, queries... Questions, comments, concerns, again. Corrections. You can email us. <laughs> corrections. Uh, email us at flopredeemer at gmail.com. And someday we will actually check our email and see it. Um, yeah, so that's it. Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, Jason will be telling us about Tamia. All right, so we're back. What are we talking about? Well, okay, so today I'm going to talk about Tamia and her song, So Into You, which was the third single off of her 1998 self-titled debut album. It hit number seven on the Billboard Hottest R&B hip-hop chart and peaked at number 30 on the Hot 100 that year. And um, this song, like I was I was saying at the top of the episode, like I, I remember where I was when I heard this song, so I'm excited to talk about her. But, uh, you know, you and I have, have talked about this, like, People sort of have a sense of Tamia, but don't really know her. Yeah. When you were talking about having a hard time finding a song to cover in this episode under this topic, it's when you talk about Tamia and so into you that I'm like, yeah, that that wasn't a flop song. Mm-hmm. But Tamia kind of gets lost in the annals of she totally this does. era of music. She totally does. And I think that that qualifies her for a little bit of an elevation in our format. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I kind of want to talk about, like, why has she not broken through in the way that, like, a Brandy, even Monica, to some extent, has, like, way more name recognition, for sure, than, like, someone to me. You know, obviously, they had the boy's mind with Brandy, but, like, you know, there were a lot of artists at that time, and... And so I kind of wanted to dig into, like, who is Tamia? So Tamia, she's been nominated for a Grammy six times. She's a Canadian singer-songwriter. She was discovered in 1994 by music manager and Lionel Richie's ex-wife, Brenda Richie, um, mm. who's also the mother of Nicole. And so that's interesting because So Into You features a music video where Nicole plays one, Nicole Richie plays one of Tamia's friends. And so it's like, it all kind of comes... Huh. Yeah, it's interesting. How old was Nicole Richie? Nicole is the same age as me right now. She's 38. She was born in 81. So she would have been 17. Oh, so weird. Right? Isn't that strange? So, like, Brenda Richie discovered Tamia 
while Tamia was singing at a benefit in Aspen for multiple sclerosis. And what's interesting about that is eventually Tamia herself would be diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Oh, so she didn't have it. She, didn't she had have not it. been diagnosed at that no, point. No, no. Oh. This was this was like 10 years before she received the diagnosis. So, but she happened to be performing at this. Brenda was really impressed. She ended up becoming her manager and had her perform at a party that she was giving for Luther Vandross. And so everybody's there. She blows them all away and she impresses in particular Quincy Jones. And Quincy Jones, obviously, he's a legend. Um you know, famously, he got into music at the suggestion of his teenage friend, um, Ray Charles. So, you know, he goes way back. It, you know, over his career, Quincy's received over 80 Grammy nominations, won 28 times. He has two Oscar nominations and eventually got like a Lifetime Achievement Award. Like, he's a legend. He produced Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. You know, We Are the World. So for Quincy to be like super blown away it was really key for her and he asked her to be on his next album which was called q's jig joint and so he puts her on two songs on the album so just keep in mind she's never had a deal at this point before hasn't been on anything yet the, her first appearance is on this it's kind of like almost like a mixtape it was a concept album mm-hmm. one of the songs you put a move on my heart was the first single from the album it's one of my favorite songs ever it's this like torchy ballad and she got a Grammy nom for Best Female R&B Performance. Um, she ends up losing that year to Toni Braxton. But the other artists in the category were Brandy, Sitting Up in My Room, Mary J. Blige, Not Gonna Cry, and Whitney, um, the Exhale, Shoop Shoop song. So hers was her and Toni were the only ones that weren't from the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack. But like, hmm. just an idea of who she was competing against that year. I mean icons all of them right Mm -hmm. the second single was called slow jams and it featured babyface portrait and barry white that was also nominated for a grammy alongside um and vogue don't let go they ended up losing to the fugees for killing me softly Mm -hmm. so i mean again like it just to put it in perspective like who was out at the time yeah to to listen to that list it seemed like she was losing out to r&b artists that were crossing over at that point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. artists that were crossing over that were like have like the fujis yes it was r&b yes it was hip-hop but it impacted but you heard the that mainstream song yeah it like crossed over right and, that song and, was everywhere yeah. i mean i worked at a fabric store on hate street mm-hmm. in san francisco that was all just you know elliot smith and um we listened to a lot of like weirdly like drum and bass music but Fuji's, 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 Fuji's. Everyone from top to bottom loved yeah. that Fuji's album. Yeah. No, I mean, like, you know, we talked, we've talked at length about how like I couldn't listen to certain kinds of music when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And my dad, though, loved Roberta Flack. So uh, Killing Me Softly by the Fuji's was like a, a gateway. Again, another another wedge in the door that I had to get him on board. Um, so first two singles that she's on both get nominated. That same year was the year where she was also on the track Missing You with Brandy, Gladys Knight, and Chaka Khan from the Set It Off soundtrack, which we've talked about before. That mm. was also nominated for a Grammy. So that Grammys, the 1997 Grammys, without an album to her name, she already had three Grammy nominations. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of expectation around Tamia at this point. Like, she's working with, like, the biggest, most renowned people. She's, like, playing in these categories, this space, like... She's clearly being set up to be, you know, the next the next diva. 
In 96, Anita Baker, of all people, um, ends up introducing her to Grant Hill, NBA star Grant Hill, um, on a blind date in Detroit. And they got married three years later. They've been together for 21 years now. I remember when they were together. That was really cute. Mm -hmm. You know, she's had eight studio albums since her debut album, Tamiya, came out in 1988. Um, I saw her at Club Nokia in 2015, and she sounds amazing. You know, and actually, I'd been wondering how she was doing now, um, you know, with the MS and... You know, because I know it's 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 a degenerative disease. There's no real cure. So I was curious how she was doing. And I discovered that um, just at the start of quarantine, she did an Instagram live duet with Deborah Cox for the song Count on Me, which, uh, w- you know, Whitney and Whitney Houston and CeCe Winans did that song on Waiting to Exhale. What's funny is that song was also nominated the same year that she was nominated for Missing You. So, like, they, it kind of came full circle. It was really cute. Um, and also, I discovered that, like, she's known Deborah Cox for forever because 98 was also when Somebody's Supposed to Be Here, Nobody's Supposed to Be Here came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so they both kind of hit at the same time. And um, they were actually, she was actually trying to put together a super group with her, Deborah Cox, and Kelly Price. <laughs> like 10 years ago and it kind of too felt, much it would have been too much i mean there would have been too much shouting but um <laughs> <laughs> um it, it would yeah 10 years ago so who knows i mean i think yeah 10 years ago 2010 2009 that was when that edm stuff was happening so maybe they were hoping to capitalize on um on on the club tracks a little bit more. well i mean also like how long ago was like the divas that vh1 divas show oh that was um 99 98 so it came out the same year. No, not the Divas special. The one that, that was like, they had like a reality show with uh, Faith oh. Hill. Oh, I don't know. And um, not Faith Hill. Fuck. <laughs> Let me start that whole fucking sentence. Faith over Evans. Again. Faith Evans <laughs> was on a VH1 reality show, kind of in like the love and bass, the the love and hip hop shows, and all those things. She was on the um, the R and B Divas show. Huh. Yeah, and they had that song. It was a uh, 2012. Oh, R&B D- the that's R&B the one that Diva. you 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 turned me on to that song. Love song, loving me with uh, Monifa Carter, yes. Selena Johnson, Kiki Wyatt, Nikki Gilbert, and Faith Evans. That song so is good. cute. I like that song. But um, it is that thing where they all need to have their lane, where they're like, okay, this is the part where you go buck wild, and this, yeah, like, yeah, you, yeah, you come in and you do this. It's yeah. not like it's not really a group song, like in the way yeah. that you would think of like. Yeah. Someone taking the lead and the rest of them supporting. It's like, yeah. you take the lead, you take the lead, you take the lead. <laughs> I mean, anyway, so, sorry. Well, no. So it's it's just interesting because like Tamia, she's in this group of women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like she hasn't really broken through. She debuted in 98. Like I said, you know, I looked up like the other albums that year, the hit R&B albums of that year. And it it is kind of crazy. So in 98, Miss, Lauren Hill's Miseducation of Lauren Hill and Doo-Wop came out. Deborah Cox, I mentioned, nobody's supposed to be here. Maya came out with It's All About Me. Aaliyah had Are You That Somebody. Brandy and Monica had The Boy Is Mine. Whitney and Mariah had that duet, When You Believe, from the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And then also, like, on the men's side, it was, like, Drew Hill, Joe, Montel Jordan, Tyrese. Like, it was, like, a lot of things were happening in 98. And, you know, there was no reason she shouldn't have been as popular as them. But, like, to your point, I think to your point, she wasn't crossing over in the way that the others were. I think especially as you move into the later 90s, Mm there's a lot more competition in that space. To your point about all these songs, all these iconic songs that came out, in that year that were R&B to pop crossovers, there was a lot. And I think that that's something that when I talk about Veruca Salt, 
mm-hmm. and what's happening to alternative music at that time. I think that there may be like an inverse correlation there. But yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, you, I mean, she was definitely, and 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 she was trying um, to break through. <laughs> she appeared um, in Speed to Cruise Control, which is, I mean. I saw that in the theater because I have an ocean liner obsession. <laughs> uh, not a great movie. Um, did not, you know, she played, she played the cruise ship's entertainer and she sang a Diane Warren song, but it did nothing for her. Just like the movie did nothing for almost everybody. A, a couple years later, uh, the year after her debut album came out, she appeared on Eric Benet, who was uh, formerly married to uh, Holly Berry at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, she appeared on his song "Spend My Life with You," and that actually earned them both a Grammy. So that was that's that has and continues to be her her only Grammy win. So all of that just kind of brings me to my song, which is "So Into You" from her debut to Mia in '98. Um, I was 16, and I can remember exactly where I was when I first heard this song. I had I had just turned 16 and I don't know how you were being that you were in San Francisco, but like I was eager for every opportunity to drive. Fully did not get my license <laughs> until like after I graduated high school. <laughs> no, I was that kid who like in Hawaii, you could get your driver's license at like 15 and a half. Mm. And I was that person who like did that. And, um, you know, like I said, I would take every opportunity to drive. And so I was driving our family's Chevy Astro van through the neighborhood to go pick up my brothers. My younger brothers were all in karate. And so I would, um, or karate. And I, uh, it, like I said, it was like maybe five minutes away, but it was just long enough to have like my own like alone time in the car and like drive. And um, they did, they did their karate practice in the, in the evening. So it was early evening you know, I would always drive with the windows down, just kind of cruising, like with the music loud. And I just remember it was like golden hour, <laughs> listening to the radio, and this song comes on right when I hit the top of this little hill. And it's so funny because like where I grew up, like the streets are purposely like not on a grid. They're like mm-hmm. they're sort of like curving to give the impression that it's bigger than it is. Right. So okay. it's not, it, you know, and so, so you have, the, it's just, you just, you just have this great sensation of cruising and the song comes on. And so, so into you opens with these like guitar and synth lines. It's very nineties, but it, it all, it reminds me of the end of the summer. Like when the light starts to turn um, and gets more golden, like as you're heading into fall and maybe it's just from the time that I was listening to it, but also I feel like that's slightly different than some of the other songs that were out. They were a lot harder. There was like an edgy, an edginess to a lot of like, like doo-wop, for example. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, The Boy Is Mine, there was that like very metallic almost sound to them or harder edged. And yeah. this was very soft. It was much more dreamy to me. It had a really great hook. And, you know, her voice is really sweet. So Tamia starts singing. Her voice is really sweet. She doesn't have Brandy's like raspiness and she doesn't have like the grit that Monica has. Mm-hmm. And at first her voice might sound a little thin, but as it go as the song progresses and as it gets to the bridge, you realize that she has this, she starts to belt and you realize she has this power and there's this, this richness to her voice that, that I just love. Um, and it's not as like cloying as, you know, Maya's who was, who I can kind of, you know, when I listen or even, even Ashanti to some extent, because they're, they're kind of similar in timber or, or the, yeah. the tone of their voice. Um, 
at first at first listen, it's kind of similar. She doesn't oversing. She has this maturity, and you realize how strong her voice is. And I just I heard this song, and I was just in love with it. And I, you know, we talked about at the at the top. Like I was very much a romantic person in my head. Like, I, like all I would like what I was listening to at that time. Like I was listening to Tony Braxton's Secrets like on repeat. I had Celine Dion's albums and the Titanic soundtrack like alternating in my CD player <laughs> all the time. Um, Mariah Carey's Butterfly like my all that song like I used to daydream that I would like sing it to someone at our at our school talent show. <laughs> like i just had like the i was like lost in my head a lot and so like Mm -hmm. i loved these kinds of like dreamy songs about about romance and things and i think also because like as a closeted kid i wasn't dating there wasn't it you know like it just felt like so far away like this idea of having that kind of romantic relationship you you didn't have you didn't know if and when it was ever going to happen for you yeah when i was doing research for this episode i was watching through these interviews that Veruca Salt had done. And one of the interviewers that was interviewing them actually made this point that I think is relevant to that. And he said that like, is there something to the idea that when you're a teenager or when you're in your young twenties and you're listening to music, you're, you're turning to music as a way of providing like replacement emotions for Mm. things that you have not yet experienced. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And you yeah. desire those things in a way that you don't desire them once you've actually experienced them. That once yeah. you've experienced, I don't know, like romance or lust or loss or all these things that you're experiencing kind of vicariously as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Like once you've experienced those, none of those things are ever as powerful to you again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. And it was because like, if you think about the songs that I mentioned, like the other stuff, it was like very these are all experiences I wanted to have, right? I imagined myself having. Like, um, and yeah, obviously, yeah, now you relate to it very differently. So the album had a lot of hype going in. I talked about like her first three songs that she was on were all Grammy nominated. She's working with the best. And so there was a lot of hype. And the song, you know, it, it did okay. I mean, it the the... The song itself hit number seven on the Hot R&B chart, but the album debuted and peaked at number 67 on the Billboard 200. So yeah, not a, not a huge success. And because of that, like the song didn't get a lot of airplay, right? So, mm-hmm. so for me, the reason, I also wonder if the reason it's really sticking with me is because like I heard it very infrequently. And this was at the time where like, if you look, mm-hmm. you, you know, we didn't have streaming music and I couldn't always afford to buy albums. So you know, I had to wait for it to come on the radio. And like, if it's not a top 40 song, it's not going to play on the radio that often. Right. Yeah. Like, unless you request it. So, so it's always, it's, it's this rare song that's kind of really resonated with me. And, you know, after that, it was like, it kind of, I feel like because the album didn't really do well or it didn't do, wasn't as successful as everyone thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, you know, it kind of blunted her momentum. And so I started wondering like, why is Tamia not bigger? Like, you know, she has all of this, all of this momentum behind her going in, you know, after she released that album, I mentioned she was on Eric Benet's um, song, she wins the Grammy and she leaves, she leaves Quincy Jones record label. And, you know, at the time she said it was because she was frustrated with the politics of the label. And what I kind of was, was hearing was they expected her to wait a really long time to develop another album. Mm Mm-hmm she wanted to kind of keep going. And so she moved to Electra, which is um, an Atlantic imprint and Electra had uh, Missy and had, um, you know, some other people. 
And she she wanted to do a more contemporary sounding album because we talked about like a lot of this other music was coming out and, you know, like Destiny's Child's like blowing up. Aaliyah's bringing like these edgier sounds. Even Mariah's doing more crossover stuff with um, both ways in R&B and in, and in pop um, with Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Right. So she puts out a new album with them called New Day. It also got kind of mixed reviews. You know, it was like the, people love her voice, but it's kind yeah. of the material sort of lets her down. And there is one song on that album that that got really big, which was Nobody's Supposed to Be Here. And that was a, her first. It's her first and only top 10 hit, hmm. which I think you mentioned you had an interesting point because you were like this song. <laughs> like, it's a fun. Yeah. It's a strange song, like out of all of them for that to be like. Wait, nobody's supposed to be here. Sorry, um, there's a str- sorry. It's um, "Stranger in My House." Okay, yeah. sorry. Her first and only top ten single with "It's a Stranger in My House." It's definitely kind of in the wheelhouse of "Nobody's Supposed to Be Here," like that sort of weird yeah. ballad. And then, and then that they thing both about experience a person that is in your house is not supposed to be there. Yeah, it's strange. It's like <laughs> what, what kind a- of cultural zeitgeist were Tamia and Deborah Cox <laughs> latching onto, where they had like people appearing in their homes, a lot of home invasions or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh what do you call it mistaken identities or whatever yeah um but i mean to your point like i think you know you talk about this when it comes to so into you mm -hmm. and her other music is that unlike a lot of the other pop crossover stuff there's something that's just more groove based about her music and dare i say it for i think a pop crossover audience they want their music to go somewhere a little bit further out than what kind of groove based music does where groove-based music kind of sits and marinates in a spot Mm -hmm. for four minutes, right? But a pop song is like, if you don't give me a chorus in like 45 seconds, I'm clicking away. If you don't give me a bridge two minutes and 20 seconds into this song, I'm just shutting you down, right? And that's kind of like the trappings of pop music is that hardcore structure. Whereas like, I feel like R&B music is a little bit more open to the idea of like, Yes, we're going to give you a chorus, a verse, and a bridge, but it's going to kind of come organically. Yeah, it's going to groove. If it, take, if it's if it takes flow. me five, if it takes me five minutes to get through this song, I'm going to give you a five minute song. <laughs> well, and that's what's funny. Like I was looking at all of her songs. All of her songs on that album were like over four minutes long. Yeah, right. And that's unheard of. It is now. that thing of like I think when you look at pop songs and you realize what it takes to get through all of the structural elements of a song in exactly three minutes yeah. and thirty seconds, just so that your song will be played by radio stations, uh-huh. it creates a system where it's like to get through all these components of a song that are expected of you: chorus, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, verse, whatever, bridge. You know, mm-hmm. it necessitates a certain tempo to get mm-hmm. played on radio. It necessitates a certain songwriting structure. It, it yeah. necessitates a certain type of lyricism. Yeah, And I think to deviate from that is basically taking yourself off of that consideration yeah. list yeah. a little bit. Yeah. You've essentially said, this isn't, this isn't for me. And the, you know, or, or I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to play in that, in that um, arena. Yeah. And, and it, what's crazy is like, clearly that was not what she was trying to do, but like where pop music and where crossover stuff was happening was like, not where she was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which brings me to 2003. So Fabulous, a rapper, who I, I, I'll i be honest, I don't know much about. But um, so he included a track on his second album called Into You, which was based on Tamiya's So Into You. But he had Ashanti singing the vocal. And um, you've talked about how Irv Gotti wouldn't let Ashanti appear in the video or do promo. 
Yeah. Um, and so Ashanti was on the actual album recording, but Fabulous asked Tamia to do the video and the radio edit. And I didn't really listen to the radio at the time in 2003. Like, I don't think I was listening to it as much. Um, I was very into, like, burning mixed albums or mixed, mixed mm-hmm. CDs and, like, downloading stuff off of, like, LimeWire or, you know, whatever, the, the you know, the different things um, at the time. And so I had only heard the album version, which features Ashanti, and I was so offended. Because, <laughs> like, I mean, like, there's only five years after So Into You had come out, and it's such a good song and to me is so great. And you know how I feel about Ashanti. Yeah. And I always felt like Tamiya's version of that song was perfect. And, and, and like to have Ashanti singing it when like Tamiya's trying to break through was like, just, ugh, I was so upset. And so when you play the back to back and you listen to Ashanti's version at like the 329 mark, I have it like marked down at the 329 mark, like she skips the bridge. So, so, so basically fabulous song you know, he's he's rapping and they use Tamiya's uh, So Into You is incorporated into it as like the hooks and mm-hmm. the chorus. And in the Ashanti version, Ashanti skips the bridge, which is like one of the best parts of the song, uh, the original song. She skips the bridge and <laughs> I'm like, I'm not here for it. And yeah. <laughs> if you listen to Tamiya's version, which and Tamiya's version, which I didn't realize because I hadn't listened to the radio, I didn't realize that Tamiya's version was the one that was actually released to radio. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just so much better. The song is almost a full minute longer because they include the bridge, like the parts that like they left out for Ashanti. She hits these notes. Um, you hear her belt. You hear her bring it home. And I'm just like, how dare you even try to go to Ashanti <sighs> first? Because Tamiya clearly is alive and thriving. And the thing is, you know... They didn't just use the song. The, Fabulous had Tamia come in and re-record her part yeah. for it. So, like, she's clearly doing it. So, just for perspective, like, So Into You, when Tamia comes out with So Into You in 98, it hits number seven on the chart, ends the year at number 32, number 30 on the Hot 100. It does okay, but doesn't break through. Into You with Fabulous spends 26 weeks on the Hot 100 and peaks at number four. So it's mm-hmm. like to your point about the crossover, like having the the rap part of it was unfortunately for Tamia, like what she needed, right? Like yeah. that was the only way she was gonna listen to it. If you look on Spotify, for Tamia's version of the original song, she has 47 million streams, which is it's not bad, but you know, mm-hmm. 47 million streams. Ashanti's version of the album on the on Fabulous's album has 62 million streams. So almost 22 million more. Or 20, 20 million more. And then the the version with Tami the the 2003 Into You with Fabulous with Tamiya, 119 million streams. So it's like they're they're still not going back to hear Tamiya's work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I'm I was I was still just like, oh man, like the, the I mean, like it's great. I'm glad she got the exposure and I'm sure it gave her a boost, but it's still kind of frustrating to me. And then um just this year, you know, since we've been in quarantine. There have been these versus battles on Instagram between different icons. And in June, um, Fabulous had a versus battle with Jadakiss. And he tried to explain the reason, because people have been asking, like, why are there two versions of the song in the first place? And, you know, he said, you know, Tamia is who the original song came from. She was getting surgery on her throat at the time when we did the song. So we got Ashanti to do the song because, you know, she was getting surgery. And then we did the video. She was back. 
Like, Tamia was back. She got her shit back together. We'd laid the vocals after her throat surgery. Tamia was like, she didn't <laughs> respond directly to him, but she tweeted, all she tweeted was a picture of all of her albums, you know, laid out. And it just said, 25 years, eight albums, zero throat surgeries. Yeah. So she's like, no, calling I, him out. yeah, calling him out. And, and what's also interesting is in 2003, like Fabulous himself had said in an interview with MTV that um, the clip, the video was going to feature Tamia and not Ashanti, who appears on the album cut. And he said, well, Ashanti, she's doing a lot of stuff on her own. Um, at the time, it was just a conflict of schedules. I'm running this way. She's running that way. The single's ready now. We just couldn't wait anymore. I had the pleasure of working with Ashanti. I love her new song. I wish her well. I thank her for being on the album version. We went with Tamia because if we couldn't get Ashanti, we had to get Tamia. She blew it away on the original. So it's like, he's like backtracking on what he's already said. Like clearly he went to Ashanti first, right? Yeah. And then it kind of fell apart. And uh, even more, even more digging, uh, (laughs) there was another interview where um, Fabulous claimed, you know, Again, referencing this interview and saying Ashanti's busy schedule and Irv Gotti were to blame for her not being able to do the song's video. Ashanti, in the in a comment on the post in June, was like, "No, I'm gonna text you and tell you the real story." And so hmm. we don't we don't know what the real story is, but I mean, like, you've, yeah, you've Again, discussed like we talked about this during the Ashanti story a little bit. That yeah, there was something happening. There was something. And I think happening. this is this is. I mean, I think that this is a something that happens really often with these stories surrounding these songs that we're talking about is that you do get different versions of the story mm-hmm. at different periods of time that mm-hmm. like, yeah, the, the versions that I had heard from fabulous, he, he talked about how Ashanti was just scheduling conflict mm-hmm. unavailable to do the video. Like let's get to me. He never, it, it seemed at that point that there was never any, yeah. Any, um, intention of getting Tamiya on the track yeah. until Ashanti became unavailable. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, you know, that so seems to be, yeah, that seems to be the general consensus that like Ashanti was hot at the time, so he went with her. And I mean, there are similarities to their voices, uh, you know, to be fair. Mm-hmm. But it became clear that like, you know, he wanted to work with her because she was hot. Since she was unavailable and the plan fell apart, went back to Tamiya, but maybe didn't actually tell Tamiya that I don't know what I don't know what was happening, but yeah, like, like who knew what when? Who knew what when? Like maybe Tamia just thought she was the first one, and it was a surprise yeah. to her that Ashanti was on it at all. And then this year, the fact that he tried to pull out a throat surgery thing just kind of makes it seem even shadier. You know, that year she also released um, "Officially Missing You," which was her next single. Um, But that was the year she also got diagnosed um, with MS. Like she'd had these weird bouts of fatigue and numbness and she didn't know what it was. Come to find out she had MS. So that diagnosis while she was getting treatment for that pushed out her her third album, which was called More. And uh, it finally comes out in 2004. But, you know, to this to the to the, the point that we've made in some of these other conversations about like what other circumstances are like kind of blunting the momentum, right. Mm -hmm. And keeping you from breaking through. It's not just one thing, right. It's like, so now she has, now she ostensibly has more exposure from fabulous, but she can't really take advantage of it because she's got this MS diagnosis and has to like recover. It goes into remission. She releases the album. She does a tour for the album. And actually she then shows up on, I don't know if you remember this tour, but she ended up uh, being a special guest on the Verizon ladies first tour, um, and that was headlined by Alicia Keys, Beyonce, and Missy Elliott. 
mm-hmm. at the time. And it was like a huge tour that year. It was like the, the biggest tour that year. Um, so, you know, she, she was she was really trying to take advantage of that exposure. In the years since, she's she, she went independent. She started her own label. She released two albums um, and a Greatest Hits compilation album before, in 2015, partnering with Def Jam for distribution. Um, and she had uh, an album called Love Life that year with the single sandwich and a soda and love falls over me. And those are two great songs. Like it's like a return to form. She's, she, she's worked with a lot of artists over year, over the years, but um, she worked with this duo pop and Oak. And at the time they were also working with Alessia Cara, Kalani, Betty who, and Oakfelder from that group ended up doing um, Demi Lovato's Sorry Not Sorry and Lizzo's mm. Like a Girl. So like there's a, there's a, there's a, it's R and B, but with a, maybe a more pop sensibility. And you can hear it in the album. The album was was a success. It's a really good vibe. Um, it it was her her highest charting album in her history, and mm-hmm. you know produced three hit singles. And um, you know it it's great if you listen to it. I mean she's she's great. She has an amazing voice. Um, she released an eighth album in twenty eighteen, and it's not great. <laughs> she didn't work with <laughs> the same people. Um, so it's it's just uneven and um. There, it's one of these things where it's like there's a lot of things seemingly conspiring, but there's also the the through line here is that her her material is 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 a lot of times uneven. Uneven, yeah, and I think that you know I wonder how much of that has to do with how self guided she's become. Yeah, over the yeah. years that like, having extricated herself from you know her musical mentors from the very beginning. And then really going out and saying, like, well, this is what I want to do, but this is what I want to do now. And two years later, this is what I want to do now. Yeah. yeah. And not having kind of, you know, the fine balance between being micromanaged by or yeah. run by committee versus like hearing other voices in the room. Like, I think that that's a yeah. very relatable struggle of like, you know, I want my artistic vision to be pure. Mm-hmm. So I don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. But. At the same time, like, I don't want to be out there like Emperor's New Clothes and find out I'm naked because yeah. I, di- I didn't ask anyone. Right. Yeah. 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 It, I mean, she like it's it's like she went from, with the de- with the Love Life, which had the deaf, which she had partnered with Def Jam. You know, you look at the the list of collaborators and it was it was extensive. And then with this new album, it really wasn't. It was like she she kind of changed course again and went back to a very small group of and and you know you wonder you know i mean it could be it could be an artistic decision it could be money i mean at that point mm-hmm. like the people that she'd worked with you know they might have been too expensive now to like continue to work with kind of to what you're saying about this timia album was great mm-hmm. this timia album was not so great i haven't heard of the majority of these timia albums yeah yeah like literally the last timia album that i remember coming out was more yeah you should listen to Love and Life. You should listen to Love Life. It's good. Sandwich and a soda. We'll post these. Like that's great. Still, so into you is still my favorite. But um, it's it's just that you know she's she she. <laughs> I wish she just had more respect, and I wish she had better yeah. material. You know, but but like I'll post the link to the to the um the video of her and Deborah Cox because they just sound so amazing, and they're yeah. like these. They just. It's so great. It just warmed my heart. And, you know, whatever the case, I'll always love her. Um, I'll always have that have that time driving, <laughs> driving along with her with So Into You uh, when I was 16. And so, you know, it's just I just if more people can give some of her things a listen, 
Maybe yeah. maybe skip the stuff between 2004 and 2015. Yeah. We'll give um, we'll give the we'll give listeners like the short list of things to <laughs> yeah. check out with Samia when it comes to her musical yeah. career on our website flopredeemer.com when this episode posts. Um Great. Is that it? Did you have No, more that's it. Extolling? All right. Listen to, cool. to Mia. <laughs> All right, uh let's take a break and when we come back I'll be back with Veruca Salt. And we're back. We're back. And today I'm going to be talking about Veruca Salt's 1997 single, Volcano Girls. This is the lead single from their second album, Eight Arms to Hold You. So I think that most people know Veruca Salt from the 1994 single, Seether. I think that that is the song of theirs that kind of made the most cultural impact. But for anyone that doesn't know... I kind of wanted to give a little bit of basis for like who Veruca Salt is, like where they came from, right? So the lead singers slash lead guitarists of Veruca Salt, Nina Gordon and Louise Post, they meet in 1992 and they are set up on what they refer to as a musical blind date mm. by a mutual friend, uh, the actress Lily Taylor. Oh, who, yeah. yeah. She's she was like, like in all those under. movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. TV shows, yeah. So she's their mutual friend. She says like, I think you guys should meet. Like you guys would really click. And they they meet and they they really click instantly. And for the next year, they're getting together and writing songs together and just dreaming about being a part of this band. And after a year of writing songs, they finally feel ready. They get a band together. Mm-hmm. So Nina Gordon, she gets her brother... Uh, Jim Shapiro to play drums and then they recruit a friend Steve Lack to play bass for their band which becomes Veruca Salt and their image is really interesting because they're these kind of early 90s alternative rock girls they kind of have this boyish way of dressing Nina Gordon is blonde and uh, Louise Post is uh, brunette and so they cut this very striking image as a group yeah and the magic I think of Nina Gordon and Louise Post is really in the way that their voices kind of interact. That they're kind of strange vocal twins of each other, even though their speaking voices are very different. When they're singing together, there's this magic, this kind of high pitched, eerie harmony that they strike with each other uh-huh. that I think really creates the magic of what Veruca Salt becomes, right? Mm-hmm. So they get their band together and they start gigging around Chicago where they all live. And they attract the attention of an indie label called Minty Fresh. And Minty Fresh, they represented um, the Cardigans when the Cardigans first broke. And Liz Fair, who was also kind of a Chicago area uh, Chicago area act. Cardigans were not. Cardigans were from like Sweden. But Minty Fresh was signing acts. And uh, Minty Fresh took note of Veruca Salt when they first started kind of gigging around the Chicago area. And so Veruca Salt is rather quickly signed to Minty Fresh. And then their their lead single, Seether, is rather quickly released. And rather quickly becomes a very huge hit. It's picked up um, by MTV as like a buzzworthy track. I was reading articles about the kind of emergence of 90s alternative rock music and how this was also the period of time around 94, 95, that suddenly it wouldn't be unusual for you to hear alternative rock, like grunge style music played on stations like Z100 in New York, which was traditionally a pop station. So they get this bit breakout success with Seether. 
But I think as is pretty traditional with alternative music, subgenres of music, indie music, there is a little bit of backlash associated with the success, especially when it comes in such a quick turnaround that this is a band that's only been together since 1992 and now it's 1994. They are signed. They have a huge radio hit, a huge hit on MTV, and they're in the process of getting signed to a major label. They're getting signed to Geffen at this point. Mm. So like sellout type of thing conversation? Yeah. And yeah. so th- that this is where a lot of that like indie cred kind of embattled feeling of alternative music, of indie music. It's the precursor to kind of like 2000s era, like hipster credibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the sentiment around Veruca Salt was one, that they didn't pay their dues. Hmm. Someone had been like, oh, for Veruca Salt to have any success, they need to know what it's like to play a show to four people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or play a show to an empty house. And if you think about it, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> like if out the gate, like you release something that people love and people flock to you for, like that's not your fault. You can't go out there and intentionally release bad music mm-hmm. in the hopes that no one will come to your show for the first yeah. four years that you're together, right? Yeah. But there is that criticism lobbed against them that like they didn't pay their dues. They didn't they didn't stage all these failed shows before having success. And then it's also because, and I think this happens throughout the 90s with alternative music in, in particular, that they're seen as kind of derivative of bands that had come before them that Veruca Salt is kind of referential to earlier alternative indie grunge punk bands Mm -hmm. that had come before them, but had never received that level of commercial success. Mm. So bands like the Breeders, the Pixies, My Bloody Valentine, like all these bands that Veruca Salt was very admittedly inspired by bands that they loved when they were trying to develop their band. The fact that they had kind of commercially surpassed any of those acts at that point and so quickly was just like frowned upon and they went they went from being this like kind of indie darling chicago local band to being a worldwide hit that was now reviled by their core audience it's funny that you're talking about this because i feel like i had i kind of forgotten like how prevalent that conversation was at the time yeah for so many bands right like and i I don't know. Do, do we just not hear it as much today? I don't know. I just, but now thinking about it, I'm like, oh, that was, yeah, it was like so, that was like the stereotype too, like, yeah, of anyone I who even it, liked the music. I, I think, I mean, I think that, yes, it, 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 it had to do a lot, I think, with the direction that alternative, like 90s alternative rock was going mm-hmm. in that 90s alternative rock was increasingly being seen as a viable commodity for major record labels in a way that it hadn't been before right so you do have acts like veruca salt being picked up by the major labels because the major labels are suddenly seeing like oh like this could be dollar signs for us but at the same time i think that there's an aspect there's definitely like an aspect of sexism at play here because veruca salt was and is they're still together but like they're a um a female fronted band Mm. and i think that with women in rock music there's always a little bit of skepticism involved in terms of authenticity of like, quote unquote, like girls playing guitar. Even if you look at the YouTube comments for some of their videos, you see a lot of that kind of interspersed, whether it's people being like, oh, I hate the way that Nina Gordon plays the guitar like this. Like, look at how she holds this part of the guitar, how she strums here versus here. 
and then you have other people that are like, well, you know, biologically women have to play guitar like this because of this, that, and the other. So regardless of whether or not they're trying to defend or, you know, accuse them of something, it's like, there's this sexism on both sides about like, oh, why women in rock are different. And I think in, in that vein, when they first come out, there is the idea that maybe they were like a manufactured band. Mm. You know, there's a lot of questioning of like, well, did you guys, to, did you two really meet organically? Did you really get this band together because you wanted to make music? Or is this like the machinations of a major record label trying to yeah. capitalize on the grunge phenomenon that is, is currently taking off? So then when it comes time to record their second album, at this point, they're signed to Geffen, so they have a major record label deal, and they opt to work with a producer named Bob Rock in Hawaii. And I oh. think that they basically they they moved to like Maui for three months. Uh-huh. And this is kind of a big decision for them because in their previous albums, or in their previous album rather, American Thighs from 1994, and then an EP that they released in the meantime, uh, Blow It Out blow it out your ass it's veruca salt they had worked with different producers a guy named brad wood and a guy named steve albini brad wood he is a producer that did um liz fair's debut album which is kind of like an iconic mm-hmm. rock mm-hmm. album yeah it was the um exile in guyville album that that liz fair had done but when they're planning on recording their second album with Geffen, they want to do a big album. They want to do a big rock album. So they get Bob Rock. Bob Rock does like Bon Jovi. He does like Metallica albums. And so I think that when you're taking a band that in 1994 was considered to be a grunge inspired band, and then suddenly pairing them with a producer who is traditionally considered more of like a mainstream rock producer I think there's they were setting themselves up for a little bit of scrutiny about their musical authenticity at that point. Mm-hmm. In the ramping up to releasing the second album, Jim Shapiro, their drummer, and also Nina Gordon's older brother, leaves the band. One of the things that I had never heard when this actually happened, but I was only reading about now, was the idea that Jim Shapiro left the band because he didn't feel like he was technically proficient enough at the drums to do the things that they were doing with the second album. This bigger bigger lush rock sound and it's revealed that like jim shapiro was a multi-instrumentalist like he was a guitar player he was a bass player his piano player the one thing that he actually never played prior to being in veruca salt was the drums he learned to play the drums to be in the band interesting and i think that 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 worked very well for their first album that was very intentionally lo-fi it had that grunge sound that was distorted and off kilter and organic it it had that 1994 feel, but when they're going into 1997 and the landscape for alternative music is changing and they're working with Bob Rock, when you listen to the final output of um, Volcano Girls or the whole album Eight Arms to Hold You, there is something that is much more intricate about mm. the instrumentation of this album. Like from my perspective as like a layman, like I can't really identify what that is, but you can hear it in the drumming that it's a lot, it sounds a lot more complicated and I was not surprised to read in from certain sources that this was in part why Jim Shapiro leaves the band at that point. Hmm. So 
So they're on a hunt. They're finishing up their second album. They're on the hunt for a new drummer and they tap Stacy Jones. Stacy Jones is the drummer for the band Letters to Cleo, right? Okay. Letters to Cleo had done like Here and Now, uh, Kay Hanley, who is the lead singer of Letters to Cleo. She is perhaps pop culturally famous as like, she's the singing voice of Josie and the Pussycats from mm-hmm. the uh, mm-hmm. Rachel Lee Cook movie. But around this time, around 97, Letters to Cleo is kind of like in a little bit of turmoil, as I understand it. So Stacey Jones, he takes this gig drumming for Farouk Assault. He talks about how he had actually flown to Hawaii while they were recording this album to audition for them. And he gets picked up at that point. I'll cut in a tangent at this point to say that one of the reasons that I more strongly become into Farouk Assault around this time is because Stacey Jones is hot. (laughs) Well, you're like big Letters to Cleo fan, right? He is, again, because Stacey Jones is hot. He's a very pretty man. (laughs) I I think the other thing, too, is that when he was in Letters to Cleo, he had this like long floppy hair. He was very much the Breck and Meyer character in Clueless, Uh that skater boy with like long unkempt hair, like shoulder length hair, Travis Birkenstock, right? Mm -hmm. Um, he joins letters. He he joins Veruca Salt in '97, and you know Veruca Salt. They redo all their publicity shots, so all the magazines and whatnot have access to these new photographs of Veruca Salt. And he cut his hair short. And I think in 1997, like straight men and skater boys were like less afraid to wear small clothing, like yeah. Oh, the clothing. super tight t-shirts. Yeah, <laughs> like when you when you watch Clueless, and she talks about those skater boys that have like the huge oversized clothes Uh and like the giant sagging pants with their boxer shorts hanging out. I feel like as you go later into the nineties, skater boys aren't as afraid to wear like flared pants and like little kind of like little t-shirts. I hate to say baby t-shirts, but no, they were like little tees. Yeah. It was like shifting, shifting towards a more fitted narrative. And so these pictures, I, I want, I'm, I'm going to post a yeah. fuck ton of these to Instagram <laughs> because I just remember just seeing these new f- promo shots of Farouk Salt and be like, oh my God, like they're hot, hot. I think I had this picture of Stacey Jones in my view binder, my senior year of high school. They did this photo shoot, I think it was editorial for like either Rolling Stone or Spin Magazine. I probably still have the copy of the magazine somewhere in this uh-huh. house. Um, but it was like an Adam and Eve themed editorial photo shoot. So the whole band was like naked. Louise and Nina had like leaves, like kind of poison ivy leaves covering their bosoms. Um, but the guys were just totally shirtless and they were like all like leaning, leaning on each other. And it was like leaves all around them and they were glistening. They had like body oil or something happening. And I just remember being like, oh, like. You know, with when you're like 17 and your hormones are going crazy, it was just like, oh, this is this is the thing. This is like the tipping point for me into yes into fandom for Veruca Salt is oh yes is Stacy Jones joining this band. Well, he, Um, you know, he was he was very attractive at the time. Oh, are you are you looking? I am, I am, and I'm I'm like I remember now, and I'm like, oh yes, he was like that ideal. Yeah, he's so pretty, and yeah, he he goes on. uh, I mean, you know, the the whole thing with Veruca Salt, those frosted tips. So, uh, yeah. So Stacy joins. Stacy Jones joins Veruca Salt. They tour the second album, but all the me all the while, like I don't think that this album ever was received as well as the first album. I think commercially, because it had the backing of a major label, it didn't perform that bad in terms of sales. But the public reception to it was kind of like, what is this? Like you were yeah. like a grunge band doing this like lo-fi. Um, 
it's the kind of lo-fi grunginess that I feel like you could really personally relate to. Like you're listening to it. And it sounds so real that it makes you that much more emotional as a teenager. Whereas like in 1997, when they're pulling back into this bigger mainstream rock production style, it feels a little farther removed, right? Yeah. But to me, like this is my bread and butter. This is when I was turning 16 and 17, right? Yeah. So to me, like this song and this album is still so good to me. But they're touring this second album. They're doing this huge worldwide tour with Bush. But a lot of different things are going on. One of which is that Louise Post was dating Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters. And during a show in um, Australia, she finds out via a phone call that he's breaking up with her and that he he's breaking up with her to be with Winona Ryder. <laughs> and Louise Post proceeds to get shit-faced drunk during this show and is just ranting to the audience about what just happened with Dave Grohl. I think the show concludes with her needing to be carried off the stage. And that may or may not be that, that, that may be neither here nor there, but this chaos is starting to show itself in the band. And shortly thereafter in late 97, early 98, Nina Gordon announces that she is leaving the band. And this is one of the great rock and roll mysteries that, to me has kept the intrigue alive for Veruca Salt within me for all these decades is that the reason that Veruca Salt breaks up is never fully explained. Mm. Um, They don't really break up, but what happens is that Nina Gordon leaves the band at that point in time. She is actually dating Stacy Jones, the drummer. And so he leaves the band with her. And then after that, Steve Lack, the bassist also announces that he is leaving the band. Louise Post she opts to take control of the name Veruca Salt and she continues to record as Veruca Salt into like, I think 2010. And she just takes on a rotating cast of other musicians with her. But again, to tap into that magic of Nina Gordon and Louise Post as like this blonde and this brunette who have these eerily matched, well-matched voices, Louise Post never recaptures that with Veruca Salt in any time after that. I think one interesting thing about Veruca Salt is that there's still this big mystery about why they broke up. And I think that that has sustained my interest in Veruca Salt as a band this entire time. Mm. Um, Veruca Salt, the original lineup, not with Stacey Jones, sadly, but um, Louise Post, Nina Gordon, Steve Lack, and Jim Shapiro, they reunited in 2014 uh, Louise and Nina say like it was just magic to be back together like all of that songwriting magic and all that music making magic that they had experienced when they first met was like back and it was something that they had been lacking for all those years apart um, but they really they really won't talk about exactly what happened but um, one thing that I did notice because they talk a lot now about once now that they've reunited that they're very collaborative in their songwriting and they're not being that they're like older now and have learned so much from life. They're not so precious about their own songwriting. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about Veruca Salt from their inception was that Louise Post and Nina Gordon separately wrote their songs. They never collaborated. Mm. And in the end, their albums were, kind of strategically comprised of like half Louise songs, half Nina songs. And so in that sense, despite being this magic pairing, they were operating very separately. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting because I was not so much aware of that when American thighs came out and when Seether came out, like you can listen to that album and it feels like a cohesive whole, 
But I think that that division becomes more apparent when you listen to the album Eight Arms to Hold You. When I heard that album for the first time, it's very weird because you get these alternating songs. Nina Gordon writes these songs that are um, very hooky, very poppy, um, very catchy, have these kind of saccharine sentimental lyrics. Mm -hmm. Whereas like for me, like the signature of a Louise Post song was always that the lyrics were so vague and interesting and had these really weird metaphors to them that gave you that sense of like, what is this song about? Like she can, Mm -hmm. she can make you feel something in her lyrics, but you don't know exactly what she's talking about that I think is like a signature, like chef's kiss, like nineties alternative song, Mm -hmm. but her songs were never catchy. Her songs were never hooky. Her songs, her songs were never poppy, especially when it comes to this album. Right. And, and when they break away, when Nina Gordon is doing her solo stuff, it's even more poppy. It's even more like saccharine. Louise Post's Veruca Salt output after Nina Gordon is even more like obtuse and vague and non-melodic, mm. you know? And a part of me wonders if that was part of the, the like... The magic of their pairing. The magic of their pairing, but if that was also kind of like what sent them onto divergent courses that led to the band's breakup. Mm. you know because it, it's it's so interesting so they released a new album in 2014 called ghost notes and when you listen to that album they talk about how the songwriting process for this latest album was entirely collaborative that if louise was struggling with something she wasn't afraid to let nina write the bridge or write the chorus or write the hook and you really hear that reflected i think in the cohesiveness of the album mm-hmm. that was strangely missing from eight arms to hold you mm-hmm. One thing that I was thinking about a lot in terms of this topic is the shifting landscape of alternative music that I kind of came of age into. I technically belong to like the zenial or like cusp generation where I'm neither Gen X or a millennial, right? Like, I think you kind of belong to the same thing, but you're more strongly millennial. Yeah. Than you are Gen X. Yeah. Versus like people that are born in like 78, I think, are also cuspers, but more strongly identifies Gen X than millennial. Mm. Whereas like I'm kind of squarely in the middle of that designation. And I think only because I have older brothers, do I maybe more strongly identify as a Gen Xer. But what I was experiencing coming of age in the late nineties, like 94 to 98 was when I was in high school was a sense from people that were older than me, people that had experienced early nineties and late eighties alternative music that Alternative music was on a downward spiral, basically starting in 94 and going into the 2000s, you know, that everything good that was going to be done in alternative music had already happened between like 88 and 93. Mm -hmm. And that everything thereafter is just continuously downhill. I wouldn't disagree with that, but still to be told that all of this music that was very important to me from an emotional level was unimportant culturally or indicative of like the downfall of civilization essentially when it comes yeah, to yeah. alternative rock music you know it left me with a little bit of dissonance about like gosh like are all these things that i love are they actually garbage mm. it makes you really second guess that and think about like god is it just is it just the hormones is it just because i thought stacy jones is this hot guy you know but i think it's part of it is that the term alternative music is kind of a loaded term. 
Mm-hmm. Because uh, kind of semi-famously, someone was like, alternative to what? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah. Because, it, and it is kind of a tricky term. It's a term that kind of surfaces, I think, starting in like the 60s and 70s around different types of music as a way to kind of distinguish alternative rock from mainstream rock, mm-hmm. right? But then when we go into the 80, late 80s, early 90s, there's official designations made by like Billboard and the Grammys mm-hmm. that segment out alternative music. Yeah. And in part, it does seem to be to segment essentially like indie rock away mm-hmm. from mainstream rock. Mm-hmm. But it was also about like airplay that there were there were kind of commercial rock stations and then there were a growing number of like um, like college radio stations yeah. or bands and stuff that wouldn't necessarily release singles to radio. Like they weren't yeah. like radio singles. It was just like there were college stations or these independent stations that were just picking up songs because they were good and because fans liked them and they were playing them yeah. and they needed a place to put all of these artists yeah. without actually or without necessarily defining what that music was, this alternative music is defined more by what it is not than what it yeah. is. Yeah. It's such a big catch all. And I think that that's where the first problem kind of arises in the nineties of like in the early, early days of alternative music, you're getting a lot of British music. You're getting like shoegazy type of music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You might be getting a little bit of punk music, mm-hmm. but then when you move to 93, and the grunge scene starts to take off commercially, then suddenly you have a lot more American artists and and alternative music is defined by grunge music, right? After that, and I think that this gets into the point where I'm coming of age in the mid to late 90s, you have major labels that are recognizing the potential for quote-unquote alternative music to make money. Mm -hmm. And it becomes this kind of conundrum of like, well... Alternative music was originally the alternative to commercial music. Yeah. But when you're trying to commercialize alternative music, is it still alternative music? Yeah. And But it, it, it changes the nature of the things that you see on the alternative charts or listen to on alternative radio because suddenly, specifically with Veruca Salt, I think you're hearing that in 1997, signed to a major label, shipped off to Maui, to record with legendary rock producer Bob Rock, they just have resources available to them that they didn't before. That mm-hmm. their grunge aesthetic was partially artistic intention, but also mm-hmm. partially working around a limitation that they had. Yeah. That yeah, they yeah, just yeah. didn't have access to all yeah. of the recording equipment and the technology yeah. that maybe they wanted. They refer to that a lot that like when they were deciding to make Eight Arms to Hold You, there were so many things that they had wanted to do with American Thighs that they just didn't have the resources to do. And so once they had those resources, they're like, yeah, we're going to make a big rock album. We're going to make an album that you could hear filling an arena, you know, because that's what they had always aspired to do. Mm -hmm. I think that when we're getting into the later nineties, you're seeing the impact of major labels trying to cash out on these artists that had formerly had not a lot of resources. So you're hearing, I think a lot more polish come out in quote unquote, alternative music. You're hearing a lot more pop credibility, I Mm. think coming out Mm -hmm. in quote unquote, alternative music. I think it's actually one of the reasons that Veruca Salt gets picked up by a major label is that 
I think that they had this sensibility that you could be doing grunge music, but it didn't mean you couldn't be pop. It didn't mean that you couldn't have a good hook. It didn't mean that you couldn't have fun lyrics, that those, those two things could coexist. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's par- partially why they were able to cross over before a lot of their predecessors. With that in mind, like where, where do you come out? Like, do you, do you buy into the fact then, or to the to the premise then that this was shitty music? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, or, like was it just hormonal, or like now that you've listened to it again? Like, I, I mean, it's hard to say. I think that I still have the same emotional associations with this album that I did when I was seventeen when it came out. Mm. I still listen to this album and I still think like, ah, oh, I remember just feeling a certain way and listening to the, this album in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, I I still don't know if I can be objective about this, but as, as a person of my particular generation, as a person that was coming of age when these songs were coming out, I think that it's very specific to my generation, Mm. even now to listen to kind of like the heyday of rock alternative from the early nineties I don't like a lot of that music Mm. even now Mm -hmm. because I don't have the critical associations with it because I was just too young to have heard it. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's funny that, you know, that obviously there's that bifurcation between pre 94, I guess you could say. Yeah. And everything that came after and just this idea, like grunge, like that it was alternative, but like it truly was becoming the mainstream. I mean, we talked about, you know, the Farouk uh, volcano girls being used in jawbreaker and you just think about like all the teen focused movies, you know, that came out in the late nineties, but for all intents and purposes, like all of that music was alternative, quote unquote, yeah. alternative rock. Letters right? to but Cleo was, had a lot of big hits that went into 10 things I hate movies. about you. Like yeah. it's like, it's like that whole aesthetic was for, you know, basically pop music. And that's, yeah. you know, we were talking about R and B and like how, you know, Tamia was kind of like solidly in R&B but everything else you know the the popular things that were crossing over were having like edgier sounds and like moving more poppy yeah it's like everything was because like you couldn't use one of her songs in a teen movie (laughs) it's interesting to think about in this period of time when alternative acts are trying to cross over into the mainstream they're getting these major label deals that are kind of antithetical to their base Mm because at the same time like you do have you do have alternative rock acts that kind of um, intentionally turn away from major deals. Mm -hmm. Like I think Sonic Youth turned away from like, you know, major label music and wanted to continue to exist within like indie credibility. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you look at these bands that tried to go for it, tried to go for a major label crossover, it didn't work out for them in the long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might have worked like immediately, but not. But and it was something that was happening across the board. And I think it's, again, it's something that I dealt with hearing from slightly older people that even artists that were, that, that were around for like the, the beginnings of alternative nineties alternative, by the time you get to the late nineties, like the stuff that they're putting out is considered garbage. Like mm. um, one of my favorite Stone Temple Pilots albums was the um, pictures of the Vatican pictures from the Vatican gift shop. The one with like big bang baby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's like my favorite Stone Temple Pilots album, but is also like, I think the most universally reviled album. <laughs> and same with like, um, you know, REM, mm-hmm. had, like 91 was out of time. And then they had like Automatic for the People, but then they had like Monster. 
and I think by the time you get to monster and you have what's the frequency Kenneth and crush with eyeliner and bang and blame, like that's for a lot of indie cred type of alternative music. And that's when REM just like jumped the shark. Mm. And that's the way it is in my recollection with so much music from the late nineties. And I think it, it bears out when you look at the acts that were popular and where alternative music was heading, because you start out the alternative rock decade with like the Smiths and R.E.M., Susie and the Banshees, like all these like seminal Mm -hmm. classic alternative rock acts. When we get to 1999 and this is I I, like after high school, I kind of fall fall more away from mainstream Mm -hmm. alternative, mainstream alternative, like whatever that is. I know. (laughs) But by like 99, that's when you're getting Smash Mouth. Mm -hmm. You're getting Sugar Ray. Yeah, I was going to say that's like the natural evolution of that. Like, yeah, it goes aesthetic. that's when you're getting all those heavily commercial alternate quote unquote alternative rock rock at that point. And then, you know, that's like the predecessor to like Limp Bizkit and Linkin Park and all these things that I started to feel more and more disconnected from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. You you mentioned that and and kind of drawing the through line between what you were listening to. Cause you know, I had some exposure to that, like with some of my friends and, it wasn't what I always listened to, but I listened I listened to a lot of it. And then like we said, like they were those songs, those bands were in movies that were hugely popular at the time. So you sort of knew. I wonder to what extent there was like a I don't want I, I hesitate to use the word like sensitivity. There was like a, a range in like the like what the songs were about and how they were presented. Um, in the mid nineties, mid, you know, going into the late nineties mm-hmm. that like, by the time you get to like, as you were saying, smash mouth, limp biscuit, like American, all American rejects, like stuff like that. Like that was much more about a kind of masculinity that I no longer, that I did not identify with. Like it wasn't, it was not, it, it didn't speak to me in that way. That's the funny thing about it is that it's almost like in the mainstreaming of alternative rock, Alternative rock just became mainstream rock again. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of co-opted and then it grew up into this other thing that was antithetical to everything that alternative rock was originally slated to be. You know, I think that that's one of the things that when they were trying to define like, well, what, what are the themes that draw together alternative rock? And one of the things is like alternative rock is traditionally more inclusive inclusive of women than mainstream Mm -hmm. rock. Mm -hmm. Alternative rock will tend to deal with maybe more serious subject matter, more emotional subject matter, or more societally, like socially conscious subject matter than mainstream rock. Mm-hmm. And that is what you see more prevalently in the early 90s and then going into the late 90s and into the 2000s. It really does start to decline, I think. it's it's. I don't associate mid-90s alternative with sort of man-children, but I certainly mm-hmm. associate at late nineties, early two thousands with like these men who won't grow up and they're a bunch yeah. of dipshits. Right. And that, that became sort of the thing. Ne'er do wells. When the alternative chart on billboard first debuted in like the late eighties, early nineties. Um, one of the first artists to top that chart was Susie and the Banshees. Right. Mm-hmm. And in that vein of the perception being that alternative music was going to be more inclusive inclusive of women than mainstream rock um you know solo female artists recurred on the top position on that chart straight through until the mid 90s so the last solo female 
to top the alternative charts in 1996 was Tracy Bonham. Do you remember that song, Mother Mother? I think I would. I think I would. That song is iconic. It's probably considered to be like a tra- uh, an atrocity in the history of um, alternative music. But I was right there for it. Because again, that was 1996. I was 16. That song came out. She's this chick that's just rocking out this like weird hate letter to her mother and like the trauma that her mother has inflicted on her. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think like to the, um, the main point we make is that like, it's, it's, but it's personal. You can't, you don't have to be objective about it. <laughs> yeah. But interestingly enough, like to your point about that early two thousands era is mm-hmm. that Tracy Bonham in 1996, she's the last female mm-hmm. to top the chart as a solo artist until Lord with Royals in uh, 20, wow. 2016, I think. Wow. So in that whole period that alternative music is somewhat on the decline into the 2000s and we're getting like new metal and rap, rap rock mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all that stuff, all those fundamentals like women at mm-hmm. the forefront of alternative music, that whole Lilith Fair, you know, movement yeah. is just obliterated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still love Rue Basalt. I to this day, I still love them. I still love Stacy Jones. He could get it. Um, <laughs> I mean, looking at these pictures, yeah. He's still he's like a good looking fifty. He's like fifty now, and he's like mm. uh, he's like the band leader for Miley Cyrus. He's done really he's done really well for himself. Like in the aftermath of Veruca Salt breaking up. And then uh, being on Nina Gordon's solo albums, he was the front man for American Hi-Fi. Yeah. Yeah. And American Hi-Fi did Flavor of the Week. They did The Art of mm-hmm. Losing. They mm-hmm. were a big crossover rock band. He mm-hmm. talks about that as being a struggle that like, you know, they were trying to be a rock band and suddenly in no small part, I think because he's a very cute guy, mm-hmm. he was being played on like Kiss FM. Yeah. And iHeartRadio was inviting him to open their like iHeartRadio festival and stuff like that. So he was playing alongside Britney Spears and all these pop acts that yeah. the radio tours were giving. And then it's basically at that point as a rock artist, that's the kiss of death. Yeah. Right. Rock radio is going to be like, Oh, you're going to go do the iHeartRadio tour. Like goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> um, that aim sound. But, but like that kind of opened him up to like, he is like the, uh, he's like the musical director for Miley Cyrus. Yeah. So he formed kind of Miley Cyrus's band that I guess has been touring with whenever she tours, she's always toured with like the same group of like five guys that he put together for her. And, um, I guess he's been instrumental in, in setting up the chain smokers. Oh God. When the chain smokers wanted to start doing like live versions of their music. Yeah. He kind of set them up with a system so that they weren't just like laptop jockeys. Mm hmm. You know, so I guess, Interesting. you know, I've never seen the Chainsmokers live, but the I guess legacy. It's, according to Stacey Jones, it's a pretty wild live experience because he wanted to make sure that like, okay, like we're going to have you move over to the keys now, or we're going to have you do drumming or we're going to have you do this. We're going to set this song up with a live band specifically. So it's not like two guys, it's not two guys stage hitting a, a space yeah. bar, you know? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, but anyway, that's my, that. I feel like this con- this has. concluded earlier, but that was my love letter to Stacey Jones. Maybe that'll go into a, a deleted <laughs> scene. Um, no. So anyway, that's Veruca Salt, and that is the 1997 single Volcano Girls. 
this was my heyday of alternative rock music. Mm. And I feel like I have to be kind of unapologetic about that. That like, yeah. I was 16, I was 17 when these songs that are considered to be terrible in the annals of um, alternative rock history were coming out. Um, but that doesn't erase, I guess, their cultural importance to me. No, absolutely you know? not. And it's, and, and it's also, like, and all, yeah. and all, and all, and for anyone that came of age when like, you know, smash mouth was really big. Like I won't hold that against you. I'll internalize that feeling. I mean, they have, they have, well, I mean, you have Shrek to thank for a lot of that. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think we're about out of time for today. Uh, we want to give some special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Just a reminder that songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And check us out on social media at flopredeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash flopredeemer. Any questions, comments, concerns, go ahead and uh, send them on over to us at flopredeemer at gmail.com. And we will get back to you someday if we feel like it. Anyway. That's it for now. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye.